Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker. So I'm actually very excited today because we have a guest that has been around the block a few times. So without further ado, Robbie Cape, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's uh, absolutely a pleasure to be talking to you today. Thank you for inviting me. So Robbie, you've, you actually, before you went at it as a founder yourself, you worked at Microsoft for about 12 years. You started there in 93. So, uh, you definitely experience what it is like to be part of a rocket ship. So I believe the company grew something like 20x during your your period here. So what did you learn during this during this journey? You know, I uh, I, I learned a phenomenal amount, it, uh, way more than I could have ever expected. You know, when when I arrived at Microsoft, you know, it, it was as you said, 1993. And my plan was to spend uh, three years at the company. I come from a very entrepreneurial family, and it, it almost is, you know, it's practically in my blood to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so when I went to Microsoft, my plan was to spend three years at Microsoft learning from the best. You know, in the early 90s, you know, if you wanted to get into software, Microsoft was the best there was. Uh, that I'd learn everything that I needed to, to learn in three years there. And then I'd go, you know, s- start my own business. And t- to make a long story short, you know, 12 years at Microsoft, um, I just, I was learning literally every day. And it's the reason why I stayed for as long as I, I did. There was just, there was always more to learn. And finally, in 2005, I mean, I was still learning, but by that point, I finally recognized that that I needed to go do what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. Um, and, and that's ultimately why I left because I, I wanted to go, you know, start building companies, but you know, at Microsoft, you know, I'd say three, three major things that, that Microsoft just bred into me. I mean, I really grew up there, right? I, mean, I, I went there a month after I graduated from college as an undergraduate, you know, first was how to build, just exceptional product, uh, you know, you know, how to both design, build, and launch uh, the best software in the industry um, was just, it was, that in of itself was, was enough and a skill that, that I've definitely uh, taken uh, from my time at the company. 
the the second thing is uh, is how to recruit great talent. Uh, you know, I always like to say back back in in the '90s that Microsoft was the uh, was was the company that had a, a, the biggest company in the world that had the most phenomenal talent, and and their their interview practices, like all of their recruiting practices, were state of the art. Uh, everything about how they the way they brought talent in and they developed their talent was was just off the charts and and I definitely that that became core to to who I was and I absolutely took that away with me and then the the third thing uh that that I learned was that you know my my place in the world uh is not at a very very large company you know and and I think ultimately uh that was what what was part of the calculus that finally got me to to realize that that it was it was time to leave, uh, but it was an incredible experience, and I wouldn't I wouldn't give back any of it. Got it. So, how many people were there when you joined, and how many were when you left? If you had to there were fourteen. So, this is a guess. Uh, I want to say that uh, when I got there, there were somewhere between thirteen and fourteen thousand people. Okay. Uh, I've I, I've I've heard a couple of rumors ab about. Uh, when I joined the company, I heard this this rumor that that in that year, for whatever reasons, and I certainly couldn't see it, they actually hired very very few additional people that year, um, like very very few. They cut back on hiring in that ninety three that that summer of ninety three, right. uh, dr dramatically. Uh, when I left. And again, this is just memory. I don't. I don't have the specific number. I think we must have been up north of seventy or eighty thousand. Wow! And wow. and and the company had changed a, a lot. You know, when the company came out of the nineties, um, the company really started to to evolve. Uh, you know, and it, some people might argue that it evolved in a good way. Yeah. Uh, but it certainly wasn't the same. You know, the same Microsoft that it was in the early nineties. Got it. I mean. No doubt, 12 years with a comfortable corporate job, and then you decide to take the leap of faith to start Cozy. So what, what triggered this? Uh, it was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, and I don't mean to be so dramatic, but I uh, back uh, two years before I left, so in 2002, 2003, uh, a, a very close childhood friend of mine, uh, passed away. She was, uh, 30 or 31 at the time. Uh, she passed away from cancer. Uh, and you know, th that was emotional and it affected, you know, my whole family, uh, deeply. Uh, but really for me, it put this fine point on the need to do today, what you want to be doing for the rest of your life. Because at the end of the day, today might be the last day of your life. Like you just never know. Yeah. Um, so th that was one piece of it. The other piece of it was during that time, I actually built a relationship with, um, with a, a venture capitalist, uh, here, here in Seattle, uh, who started to give me a bunch of advice around, founding a company and, and just sort of had to break into that space. And he had me read this book 
that was um, written by uh, a gentleman who had who actually became a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. Uh, his name is Randy Commissar, uh, and he wrote this book titled "The Monk and the Riddle." And the monk and the riddle talks about this this thing called the deferred life plan, uh, which is which, as it turned out, was sort of the situation I found myself in where I was, even when I joined Microsoft, I was literally executing the, the deferred life plan, uh, life plan as, as Randy describes it, where you're living today to learn and grow or save money or whatever, so you can live the life tomorrow that you really want to live. Right. Okay, he calls that the deferred life plan. And these two things together really sort of, you know, brought my situation into very sharp focus. And I recognized that, that as a result of that, that, that it was really time to, to plan my, my exit from the company. Uh, and I, I made the decision at the time that it would be really fun and, and educational and valuable to actually have a startup experience at Microsoft before I left. Plus, you know, I just didn't feel like I could just rip myself out. I was, you know, just deeply entrenched and in love with the company. I mean, I loved everything about the company. And so I decided to move into the position that would be my last position at the company to, to basically do a startup within the company. So I looked for a startup opportunity and found one. And I did that for a year and a half. Um, built a brand new team doing, you know, a brand new effort, uh, got that to the point where it was actually acquired. It was moved into another much, much larger group at the company. And that to me felt like, okay, now's the time. Uh, and that's when I, when I resigned and I turned my attention to, uh, figuring out what was next. Got it. Got it. And how did you meet your co-founder, Jan? Jan, uh, Jan Miksofsky, and I had worked together on Microsoft Money. So the bulk of my time at, uh, at Microsoft was spent on Microsoft Money. Uh, I joined that team uh, just two years after I joined the company in 1995, and I stayed on that team until uh, 2001. Uh, and for four of those years, I worked with Jan. Uh, we, we worked very well together. And I had an enormous, well, I still have, uh, an enormous amount of respect for Jan's product skills, uh, his, his design skills, user experience, uh, product intuition. I, I had just, I developed this incredible uh, respect and trust in him. And, you know, at that time, when I was thinking about all of the people who I'd love to build a company with. And that's really where I personally start. I know a lot of people start with an idea or a market or a direction. And I, I really first dream about the who, uh, at the time when, when I dreamt about the who, uh, you know, Jan was at the very, very top of my list. Um, and I approached him and he was, was all game. And so, you know, we were off to the races. And why was he at the top of your list? Because, you know, it's, it's th three things that I think you, you, you want to look for in any partner, uh, whether it be a business partner or a lifetime partner or, you know, in any partner. 
uh, first and foremost, you know, there there has to be a uh, a strong sort of underlying relationship there, and and we had a strong relationship that was built on on first and foremost trust and integrity. Uh, so that that really solid relationship is essential. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, there has to be you know I, I had phenomenal respect for him and and what he was good at uh and the degree to which uh those skills uh that that he had were essential to the enterprise that we were going to build uh and then number 3 uh, i i felt that i could learn and grow uh, and relentlessly improve myself uh, by virtue of being with him, uh, you know, uh, associating myself with him and spending all that time that you would spend with a business partner. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, I think that those three things are, are, are sort of the key dimensions whenever you're, you're choosing any partner. Got it, got it. I'm very glad that you mentioned integrity because... I honestly think that without integrity, there is nothing and, and really like being able to deliver on your words. So, so thank you for, for really sharing that. What was the, um, the business model about, um, you know, really behind Cozy? Our business model was ultimately, uh, bifurcated. So we, we had a, a, a sort of a, a, a two prong, uh, model, uh, on the one hand, it was an advertising model uh, because when we started uh, in 2005 through 2006 and even 2007, uh, advertising models were really uh, the, they were the rage. I mean, it's not what it is today. Uh, that was really the approach uh, to building a, a any consumer business. Uh, the concept of consumer subscription, like consumers paying money for software, I, I, I mean, it, it really didn't exist uh, at that time. And so we started with an ad-based model. And then over the course um, of the first several years, so by, I think, 2010 or 2011, we, we evolved to a freemium model uh, where there was a free ad-supported component to the business, and then there was a subscription um, upsell for consumers that you know was based on an annual membership. Got it. And how did you uh, capitalize the business? We capitalized the business uh, largely through uh, both angel investors and strategic investors. Uh, so initially, out of the gate, uh, you know. I'll, I'll be, you know, obviously I'm going to be honest through through all of this, but it was very challenging raising money for for Cozy. Uh, it was even though it wasn't clear to us, uh, it was very clear to to institutional investors that this couldn't be a you know a billion dollar business, let alone a ten billion dollar business. Uh, and so attracting institutional capital was um, was basically impossible. We tried uh, very, very hard 
um, and we got turned down um, every single time. Uh, but we were um, we were tenacious, uh, you know, incredibly tenacious, and we kept looking for other uh, potential sources of capital. Uh, and ultimately, we're able uh, to raise considerable financing early on uh, from high capacity, uh, not very, very high capacity, but high capacity angel investors. Uh, so, you know, and I'm, I kind of forget the numbers now. I want to say the first, you know, six to $10 million that we ended up raising um, on the business. Uh, you know, was, uh, was all from, from angel investors. Uh, later, uh, we developed, uh, strategic partnerships, uh, that led to additional financing coming from, uh, highly strategic investors. Uh, and that, that ended up being a, a worthwhile source for us. Got it. So all in all, how much capital was raised? Uh, we actually don't talk about that. Uh, okay. or, or we, I don't think we ever published what the total number of dollars were that we raised for the company. Got it. I think on, 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 on our website, I, I saw something around 30 million, but, uh, but anyhow, uh, the next question here that I have for you is how, how did you meet those investors? Like, did you get our introduction or, or what was the process of getting in front of these guys? It, it was exactly as, as you would expect, you know, uh, it was a lot of networking. Uh, we, we were very fortunate. Um, so in the very early stages, um, my family, uh, ended up, uh, agreeing to, to basically match any investment for, for the initial round that was very small. They matched every dollar that we raised outside dollar for dollar, okay. which, uh, which was phenomenally helpful. We still had to go outside and raise all the money in order to, to close out the round. It was, you know, all in all, a relatively speaking, small number, but still uh, an enormous challenge. Uh, we, we ultimately, I'd say the, the turning point in, the, uh, in, in, those first, in that first external round was uh, attracting the attention of a local sort of professional angel investor here in Seattle by the name of Ben Arroyo. Uh, John Carlton, uh, at the time, he had come from GE Capital, and he had a look at our business and was excited about the business and ultimately made the decision to, you know, take a lead position uh, in that first round. And the way the community works here in Seattle, it's Uh, I mean, Seattle is obviously a very big town, but we still operate very much like a small town. The, the networks are fairly tight. Uh, and there's a set of angel investors here, here in Seattle who, who have uh, a lot of respect uh, for John and his ability to, to identify companies. And so, you know, by virtue of his introductions and then those individuals' introductions, You know, just through basic networking, we were able to to uh, put together around uh, fairly efficiently. Um, you know, back in those early days. Got it. Got it. So, so all in all, you spent it about 10 years uh, with Cozy, and then uh, until the acquisition happened by timing. So, 
how this did did this uh, M&A transaction come about? Yeah, it was it was nine years, um, nine years. of building uh, of of building cozy, uh, and you know it's safe to say that I'm I'm covered uh, with scar tissue uh, from that experience. I, again, I would not give back any of it, uh, phenomenal learning and growth. Um, you know, a lot of it positive and a lot of it really hard learning, like very, very hard learning. But one thing that we did do, uh, so we did a lot of things well, and we did a lot of things poorly. Um, one thing that we did well, uh, was we engaged a, a just a phenomenal number of um, of consumer members in this very very sticky and daily relevant task of managing family life. Uh, you know when when we went out and started talking to potential acquirers, uh, we had uh, about fourteen million members. Uh, you know uh, on the service. Uh, which had never been achieved for a narrow niche uh, service like Cozy, and certainly not any calendar service or any service for families. Um, you know, especially given that most of the things that we were providing uh, at their core level were available for free um, on Apple uh, or Google or Microsoft platforms. So, you know, we'd attracted this just this incredibly dedicated, loyal membership was was one. And number two, we had built this brand, uh, you know, and we we worked to build the brand, but it isn't like we spent millions of dollars developing this brand and marketing and stuff like that. We just we built the brand through the product that we created. And after nine years, we had a brand that was highly respected in sort of that family industry, you know, in the industry of people who want to talk to families and to moms. Uh, Cozy was a very well-respected technology brand. And it turned out that that membership plus that brand and all the attributes around the brand were quite valuable to uh, several companies out there who, who were also targeting that very same demographic. Uh, and when, when we kicked off the, uh, the M and a process, uh, we had, you know, we already were having conversations with several of those companies. Um, we decided to kick off a process. We, we hired a, a bank and, and started to talk to a broader set, um, of those types of companies from all sorts of industries, interestingly enough, uh, from industries that that actually surprised me, and it was it was exciting to see the level of interest across different industries uh, for these two assets that 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 we had built over the course of the prior nine years. Really cool. And and how long did the process take? Like from the time, let's say, at a board level, you guys agreed, okay, let's 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 go after this this path till the moment the deal was was actually closed. It took six months. Six months. Got it. Got it. And and the terms are not public, right? That is correct. Got it. So after after this experience, you go out and and 
and you basically do your your most current venture, which is ninety eight point six. So, how did you come up with with this idea? Going back, uh, Alejandro, to to what I I discussed, you know, earlier around you know coming out of Microsoft uh, and starting to think about what was next, you know, I uh, I followed that same pattern, exactly the same pattern. The the first thing that I did uh, was I I started to dream about who, you know, who who would I, uh, you know, love to build this next company with, and uh, you know, and I I created my list, uh, and there were people at the top of the list, and there were people underneath the people at the top of the list. <laughs> Right. Uh, and you know, I ended up, uh, over the course of, of the following, you know, year after, after the acquisition happened, uh, to develop a relationship, uh, with the individual who was at the very top of the list. Now it just so happens that the, the person at the very top of the list who is, you know, uh, very much, I, I, I consider a, a partner. Um, he's, uh, he's, uh, one of our uh, lead investors, uh, an absolute brilliant individual who I, I learned from, you know, just about every day. Uh, he happens to be uh, a very private individual, uh, who, who has, uh, made the decision, you know, not to have his name, uh, out in the limelight. Um, and so he's, you know, he's in the background. Um, and, uh, and I speak to him all the time still, I mean, uh, you know, just about daily, sometimes often multiple times a day. Uh, but it was ultimately that partnership with him, uh, and the work that we did, you know, over the course of that time, uh, over the next, you know, like year and a half to two years, uh, after, um, after we sold cozy, that ultimately ended up evolving into uh, what is 98.6 today. Got it. So is this a partner involved on the day-to-day, or it was just like at that point, and he's just like perhaps for strategy and, and other stuff? Uh, he he is not involved day-to-day with the business, though, as I mentioned, I do talk to him uh, just about every day. Uh, he doesn't have an office here. He's not operational in the business in in any way. Uh, but he's, he's, uh, a phenomenal coach. Uh, he, I mean, calling him an advisor understates the value, uh, that he brings and I, and I really do believe that every single CEO out there should have an individual like this, um, who is right there with them, who is actually not in the business. I think there's, there's value in that individual, not being in the day to day. Um, and really being um, having this sort of highly objective outside view, because that's often what you need. I mean, that's the role that your board plays. But your board is really, uh, first of all, their involvement in the in the business, you know, is always going to end up being limited. They usually have other full time jobs. Um, and the amount of time that they spend uh, with the business is going to typically be be limited, you know, at best, you know, it's, you know, a full day once every month or two. 
you know, that's very different than the sort of relationship that I have uh, with 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 my co-founder, uh, where you know we're we're literally you know on on the phone every single day, uh, and and he has you know a direct line into uh, you know how I'm feeling. Um, you know, uh, I often talk to him about how how executives are feeling. You know, he 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 knows. Uh, he has insight again on a on a very frequent basis into the things that I'm feeling really good about, uh, the things that I'm worried about, and that sort of context is so helpful when I'm faced with an issue that I need to deal with. You know, now it does that doesn't happen every day because our executive team is incredibly strong and uh, just I mean I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by these truly, truly outstanding individuals uh, who are carrying the water in each of their areas and with each other uh, day in and day out. But, you know, every, you know, often there are decisions that, that I need to make. And, and having an advisor, having a, a, a coach, a critic uh, who, who is capable of, of, talking through those sorts of decisions with me, uh, who doesn't have a vested interest in the answers uh, other than the success of the business itself. In other words, there's no operational implications to him. Um, it provides just amazing clarity uh, and also helps me learn and grow um, every single time we go through a, a tough issue like that together. Got it. And and just out of curiosity, the the employees know that know who this person is or or, or oh absolutely you? okay okay I was just wondering if this was like a you know kind of like a ghost partner that that only nope. a few people know okay got it cool so what's the um what's the business model of ninety eight point six so that the listeners understand it we are executing a you know the easiest way to put it is a a membership model. Uh, so we're providing on-demand primary care uh, through your mobile phone. Obviously, there's a much larger mission and vision. Uh, but, you know, to answer the question just about business model, uh, we, we, are in, we are delivering uh, unlimited access or, I mean, un unlimited primary care through a, a text-based private secure uh, mobile application on your phone. Uh, we can also do video and we can do audio and all those things, but, but really our experience is optimized around this text-based experience and, 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 and the model is membership oriented. So you, you, you pay, uh, you pay once, uh, for an annual, uh, subscription, uh, and then you have unlimited access, uh, with, with no utilization fees. Um, Except if you happen to be uh, on a high deductible health plan, there's a bunch of IRS regulations uh, related to uh, how uh, how people pay for medical services when they're on a high deductible health plan, and so we have to charge fair market value uh, for the um, for the visit. In that case, it's a very low number. Uh, so, and 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 we we make the service available in that same membership-based model 
uh, to self-insured employers and to some of our other larger partners. So it's very much a membership-based, unlimited utilization service, very much like the other services that uh, consumers have become accustomed to accessing, you know, on their televisions at home and on their their mobile phones and tablets and, you know, throughout their lives. And I heard you say that you want to be in sickness, but also in wellness with your uh, customers. What do you mean with this? That's exactly right. Uh, we we are uh, building uh, a, 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 a service that that certainly when someone is sick, they that is a very compelling call to action for them to 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 try 98.6 and to have a great experience with 98.6 that they you know will want to tell um, everyone they know about and certainly that's our that's our goal however uh, we want to be engaging that individual in their health We, we actually view the transactionalization of primary care that we've seen develop in the existing healthcare system as a rather major problem. Uh, we believe that it is a that transactionalization is a regressive innovation that has occurred in the primary care industry. We think it leads to a bunch of bad outcomes and bad results downstream. We are trying to deliver what we often refer to as old-fashioned primary care, uh, where, where uh, you know, the kind of primary care that was practiced 30, 40, 50 years ago, where it, an individual's relationship with their primary care physician at that time was one of the most important relationships in their lives. You know, when they had a major life change, uh, they would often, you know, one of the first calls that they would make would often be to their family doctor. Um, that that was primary care. You know, when 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 we look at the impact of the relate of a relationship with a primary care physician, um, and and the impacts of that relationship are are just just outstanding. I mean, when an individual has a relationship with primary care with a primary care physician, uh, they are 19, 19% uh, less likely to die a premature death. Uh, they will save 33% on their healthcare costs over the course of their lives. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, you know, and, and yet, our nation is driving quickly to a state well, we already have a shortage of primary care physicians, and that shortage is growing. By the year 2020, we'll have a shortage north of 20,000. By the year 2025, that number will be over 30,000. Wow. Um, and, and, and so the, the systems, the, our nation's response to that has basically been the transactionalization of that care. In other words, you know, this, you know, almost a uh, an innovation on top of fee for service is that you know you you walk into a clinic and you pay them you know forty fifty sixty seventy eighty dollars you know and they write you a script for you know 
whatever was wrong with you in, in almost all cases, that does not, that sort of experience doesn't bring all of those benefits that I was describing around a relationship with primary care. And so what we've done is through technology, we are virtually introducing thousands and thousands of new primary care physicians, the equivalent of new primary care physicians into the market. And instead of relying on a relationship with a single individual, we are building out a service that will deliver that relationship. So in our vision, that relationship that people would have built with a a traditional primary care physician 30, 40, 50 years ago, that is the same relationship that we want to enable them to build with 98.6. And just like that family doctor was there for that individual 30, 40, 50 years ago, for all sorts of issues that happened in their lives, we want to be there for that individual, also for all of those issues. Uh, we want to be, you know, the place that they go, um, you know, for the people who, who are happy to, to have that be a technology-based service as opposed to an ambulatory experience. Unfortunately, those ambulatory experiences are few and far between right now and are largely, you know, reserved, you know, for the people who can afford uh, the hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars that you need to spend for a concierge doctor, uh, which is really the analog of what we're doing digitally, for all the other people who can't build that sort of relationship, who can't afford to build that relationship uh, with an individual in an ambulatory setting, we want to build that relationship with them. Got it. And, and, I imagine- and, and de- deliver the full life cycle you know, of, of capabilities. Um, but do so digitally. Uh, it'll limit what we can do. There's no question. We can't do everything that yeah. can be done in an ambulatory setting with that individual, but we can do the vast majority of things. Got it. I imagine as well that uh, security and privacy with something like this has probably been a challenge, or maybe not. How did you overcome some of those hurdles? Uh, it's, it, it has to be a focus. You know, the the way you do it uh, is by dedicating the resources to being best of breed, um, you know, on that dimension. Unfortunately, what that translates into is needing to behave uh, like a a very, very large company. Uh, We happen to have been afforded the ability uh, through just, you know, exceptional fundraising to do the work necessary uh, to to be a large company on the security and privacy front. Like we can't be a little startup, you know, that puts it together with, you know, when you're a, a little startup and you're delivering, you know, social networking capabilities or, uh, I mean, pick your startup out there where the stakes uh, around privacy and security are much lower you you can afford to put it together with uh, duct tape and bailing wire. Like, that's an option. For us, that was not an option. 
we we had to be state of the art uh, with security and privacy uh, from day one. Um, and the steps that we've taken, you know, continue to reflect that. Like, you know, as an example, um, after less than a year uh, with our product actually out there in early beta. Uh, so now we're talking about the end uh, of 2017. We conducted, I mean, we were only a couple, a year and a half old, two years old, and our product had been in used by maybe 50, 75, maybe 100 people. I mean, we were tiny, tiny, tiny. We conducted our first SOC 2 audit, um, you know, where, you know, an independent firm comes in and looks at all of your security and privacy methodologies and processes and capabilities and platform choices. And I mean, everything that you do at the deepest, deepest level. I mean, it is unheard of for a company at our maturity at that time to conduct that sort of audit. Uh, and for us, it was obvious. Like, of course, we have to do that. We 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 have to behave like a big company, and and you know, it has uh, that has translated uh, into our ability to to close some critical contracts. Uh, every contract. I mean, we often will will be um, doing uh, you know building partnerships with self insured employers who who have tens of thousands in some cases hundreds of thousands of employees um and they will unleash their security and privacy teams on us um and they are blown away with what they see uh you know they they walk in and they you know they they're used to seeing a startup you know and they end up coming in and yes, in terms of our age, we look like a startup, but in terms of our maturity on the security and privacy front and on a lot of other dimensions as well, we look like a company that's been around for 10 or 15 years. Uh, and they're blown away by the ease with which we make our way through these, um, these security audits that they put in front of us. You know, we've heard from from companies with literally millions of members. Um, we've heard stories from them like, and I'm quoting here, we, we have never, a, a company that we've evaluated has never passed our security audit on the first round. It's never happened. And yet 98.6 did. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, it's it's interesting what you were saying on on behaving like a matured company and 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 really not acting as a as a startup. And I and I'm and I totally get that. I wanted to follow up on that and, and just ask so that the listeners, you know, are able to get an understanding on 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 the on how you capitalize the the business itself. How how much capital did you guys raise for the business that is publicly disclosed? We have raised eighty six million dollars. Got it. And I saw that you did a seed round, a series A, a series B, and most recently a series C. How did you see the expectations from investors change from financing cycle to financing cycle? Uh, as, as you would expect, 
you know, in the, in the very early days, uh, the the investors were expecting us to, you know, if if you look at our our seed investment, um, and that was a pure inside round. So that was uh, my, you know, that that round was was covered by um, my co-founder and and my family. So his family and my family, and they were actually probably. Uh, you know, t- to date have been two uh, incredibly critical um, and uh, very high expectation uh, in- investors because they're closest to-, to us. You know, they they have those relationships to be, in- you know, to set very, very high expectations, you know, and at the very early day, their expectation, like they, they saw a plan on the back of an envelope. Now, it turns out that my co-founder was was part of of putting together that plan um, on the on on the back of the napkin, um, but there were so many assumptions that we had made, uh, and and what we did was we established some very clear milestones in that first uh, seed investment. We actually tranched the investment. Uh, and we're not going to be able to take down additional tranches of that initial uh, initial three million dollars until we achieved those basic objectives in the business. So one of the things that we 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 decided that we were going to need to do, and so we put it down in writing in front of the investors as a requirement, was we were going to need to go out and get a third party uh, legal and regulatory analysis of our vision and, and basically reality check from a legal and regulatory perspective that we were going to be able to deliver on what we wanted to. Now we had done a bunch of research and had, had, um, had expected that, um, based on our research that we'd be able to do that, but, you know, we hadn't gone very, very deep, um, with a nationally recognized healthcare law firm. Uh, to understand our business at a deep level. And so that was a requirement. And and so the the expectation of that seed was that we would check that box. Another thing that was an expectation um, of that seed round was that uh, we would uh, be able to put together a set of of medical advisors uh, through this medical advisory board that we established uh, that, that would basically lend by virtue of their willingness to be a part of the team, uh, they would lend an element of credibility to what we were building um, and also provide us with phenomenally valuable feedback uh, on the plan. Because remember, in those very early days, it's really less about executing the plan and it's more about formulating the plan. Um, and then thirdly, obviously, the, the absolutely hardest thing that you do when you're kicking off a, a business and there were some really tough requirements that the, those seed investors put on us uh, was around building the team, you know? And so th- that was the expectation in the, in the very, very early day. I'm not going to go through each round, but you know, in, in those early days, the expectation was around creation of the plan. You know, as you move through to the next round, uh, like an A at that point, your plan is established. Uh, and really, they're investing in the plan, and they're more looking at 
at your ability to to actually execute on that plan, like to actually begin to build the product that you say you're going to build and hit the milestones that you've established around building that product um, and get early reaction uh, from people to that product. Uh, so, you know, really starting to, to look at the details around the product build. Um, as you move forward to the next round, you start to, to look at, at commercial viability uh, and expectations start to, to come in with, you know, with a company like ours that obviously takes a little bit of time uh, to, to get out into the marketplace, given the decision timelines that self-insured employers who were going to be our first channel uh, engage in, uh, you know, that, that B round, uh, the expectations there were really around proving that commercial clients, not at huge scale, but at some scale, uh, were willing to sign contracts and deploy with, um, you know, with, with, with their members, you know, it's really, you know, proving that the market uh, is is that there's a market need there, uh, and that the market is willing to engage with a very you know with an early company in this space. So you know you know that coming into the B that ends up being there are high expectations around that, and then in in the C, it's really more around scaling. You know that that you can you can show coming coming you know. Through the C, uh, your the, the C investors, at least in our case, really want to see that you're on this growth curve uh, that you know that that would enable you, as some investors like to put, uh, you know, uh, that enables you to get to you know what they call escape velocity. You know, that enables you to build a business that is really going to operate. Um, at a substantial scale, you know, I think, you know, at, at this stage, it's not necessarily that you've achieved that phenomenal scale, um, but that there are many indicators, very real indicators that that show that you are going to get to that scale. And it's just a matter of executing now to get there. And along the thread of all of those are are that you're building the team effectively that you know you're you're you have the right leadership in place to not only scale the the delivery of the product but also scale the team and the operation um that you're building the the right values foundationally uh in order to scale the organization uh one of our investors um and and he's actually a a board member likes to say that culture is not the most important thing; it is the only thing. Um, uh, that, that's a quote from Jim Sinegal, uh, the co-founder uh, of Costco, the, and, and the former CEO of, of Costco. Uh, and, it, and it's true. You know, our our investors have absolutely evaluated through all the rounds at different levels of scale of the organization, have evaluated the culture of the company because ultimately. We're growing quickly, and those that foundation gives us the platform on which to build up this skyscraper that, that, that we're trying to build. 
you know, um, so they're, they're absolutely, you know, examining that. And then, you know, lastly, they're always through all of it, they're evaluating your execution. Like because at every round you say, listen, we're going to do A, B, C, D, and E, uh, over the course of the next year. Um, and stuff happens and things change. Uh, still investors want to see that you're capable of making commitments and then executing all the steps that you need to execute in order to deliver on those commitments. They understand that things change and goals change and, and you, we have to be nimble, um, and, and certainly adjust on the go. Uh, but they also need to see that you can execute. Uh, and that's the case at every single round. I love it. I think that out of the guests that we've had, you've probably explained the best the expectations throughout every every single financing cycle. So thanks for doing that, uh, Robbie. You're welcome. I always, I always ask this question to our guests. If you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be? It's very difficult uh, to, to zero into one thing. Uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's a bunch of things that, that we've done, you know, that, that we did well, uh, at, at cozy and that we're doing well at 98.6. Um, I'd say that, uh, actually uh, there's a venture capitalist, um, here in town who, uh, who told me, you know, as we were selling, uh, cozy, he, he, he pulled me aside. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we, we've never taken at cozy and not at 90.6. We we've never taken money from venture capital. And yet, uh, we have a lot of relationships with venture capitalists. In in, a, in fact, we have a growth investor, um, an institutional growth investor on our board of directors here at, at 90.6. Uh, that's Nodder um, from Fraser healthcare. So we have a lot of relationships and we can gain a lot of learning from those individuals experiences building many many companies but this this one individual um here in town who's in the consumer uh space uh he he told me he said you know Robbie your your tenacity is both your greatest strength and your greatest weakness um you know, over the years, I thought that was very insightful of, of him. And over the years, I've come to recognize that he probably says that to a lot of CEOs because um, most CEOs, you know, if there was a class for CEOs uh, that, that spanned, let's say it was an eight-week class, there would literally be a week about tenacity, you know, and what it means to be tenacious and what it means to drive through obstacles and the ups and downs and how you have to power through the downs and celebrate the ups. I mean, that's all, it's all about tenacity. Uh, and unfortunately that same course is not going to have a week about how to fail. Yeah. And it's, it's really unfortunate because it turns out that the vast majority of CEOs are going to fail. Uh, and there's no playbook page, uh, let alone a chapter or a week of a class that is going to teach you how to fail. Because remember, they're just teaching you about tenacity. Yeah. 
Okay. However, the most, one of the most important things, and this is the, you know, when I talk about the scar tissue that I'm covered with from, from Cozy, and it was a phenomenal experience. And as I said, I would not give any of it up was that uh, it took too long. There's, there's no question that given the amount of time that I dedicated uh, personally in my own life to that effort, given what we ultimately built, um, it took too much time. Uh, and every entrepreneur, you know, you talk to a CEO and you talk to them about, you know, the things they're most worried about and the, the biggest problem that they're having and you know, all these things, they all say their scarcest resource is money. Like they're always talking about the next round they have to raise and how are they going to get the money and how much money they're going to raise, all this stuff. And that's that again, that, that's another week of this, you know, of this, you know, whatever eight week class is raising money because money, money is your, is your oxygen. Yeah. But they don't teach you about your time. It turns out that each of us as individuals on this earth, our, our scarcest resource is not money, it's time. And in so much as we each are driven by impact, we need to constantly be making sure that we're making best use of our time. Which brings me back to failing. Um, my bet is that most CEOs uh, take most founders, most CEOs, most most co-founders and partners at young companies take too long to fail. Yeah, because yeah. it's impossible to know when to be done, when to move on. Um, you know, I. I like to use this term, although it's way oversimplified. It's not fair to say it, but, you know, I'll often say it anyhow. I say, you know, the biggest learning I, I had coming out of Cozy was fail fast. Um, now, the truth is putting that into action is it's almost impossible because how do you know? It's, it's impossible to know. You're in the middle of it. Again, it's another great reason why. You want to have these, these relationships with people who are a little bit on the outside, who are a little less emotionally invested, or maybe dramatically less emotionally invested in what it is you're building to be able to have that conversation with you. But you need to have it frequently. It's not just you know, something you should be talking about when you're in this situation at the very end. You want to be thinking about it day one, as you're building the business to begin to establish some of the framework that's going to help you make that decision that is likely going to be, I mean, you hope it's a decision you're never going to need to make, but you have to develop that rubric when things are good so that when it comes time to potentially, you know, God forbid, make that decision, that you've established the framework to, to go ahead and make it because uh, it is the hardest decision you'll ever make as the leader of a young developing company. Yeah. Very, very powerful, Robbie. So uh, you've been very generous with your time. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? 
the the best way well the 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 best way to reach out and say hi is to go to 98.6.com 98.point6.com download 98.6 sign up i mean it's 20 dollars for the first year for unlimited access to primary care and i can assure you that even just experiencing the product once is worth the $20 so that you can then send me feedback. And I think LinkedIn is a great way to do it. Send me feedback on LinkedIn about your experience with the product. That's absolutely the best way um, to, to get in touch with me. And, you know, I, I love, I love getting feedback. Um, please don't share any uh, private health information. Um, but uh, I I absolutely love to to hear any feedback that people can give me, uh, and and ultimately give us because uh, I share that feedback with everyone at the company, every individual encounter, and uh, we're doing a lot of encounters every day now, so we, we get a lot of feedback. But every element, every little kernel of feedback, every little piece of gravel. Uh, is is it's not gravel. It's actually a, a little sort of piece of gold for us. And it helps us relentlessly improve the product. So that's by far and away the best way you can get in touch. Use the product and send me feedback. Amazing. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.